0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, folks. Kaiser here. We've got a new initiative at SupChina that I want to tell you about because I suspect many of our listeners are just the sort of people we want to get involved. And it's a chance for you China nerds to parlay your arcane knowledge into a little income. We've launched a consulting and expertise marketplace called SubChina Direct. The goal is to connect the best China-focused talent with the companies and organizations who need support for their China-related projects and initiatives. Think of us as the Airbnb of highly qualified, deeply experienced China professionals. We've already built out a pretty decent network, a couple of hundred independent consultants and boutique consulting firms. We're really looking for people who know healthcare consumer and retail, macroeconomics, and of course, technology. And if your business is looking for experts in those or pretty much any other fields for anything from market entry to due diligence to digital marketing to supply chain sourcing, just get in touch. So whether you're a subject area specialist who wants to pitch new clients, or if you're looking for just the right specialist yourself, go to www.subchina.com/direct and sign up today. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds and hundreds of sources, plus links to the original pieces on our website. Sign up for access, and you get all that and much more with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the latest on the trade war to the ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or by some estimates well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gould, coming to you today from the Seneca South studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Jeremy is away on holiday this week in New Zealand. Today on Seneca, we're talking about the conservative resistance to reform and opening the diehard advocates of a communist orthodoxy they think has been betrayed by China's embrace of market liberalization in the late 1970s under under Deng Xiaoping. The far left in China goes by many, many names. They've been labeled left deviationists uh, back in the Deng days. Uh, Then neo-Maoists, which is a name many in the movement itself came to embrace, or even as a provocative and fascinating new book's title calls them, the new Red Guards, by whatever name, they represent not just some fringe end of the Chinese political spectrum for all their seemingly extreme views, but a a political and ideological force that has remained very much in dialogue with the party leadership in China throughout 40 years since Reform and Opening began, and these still matter very much today. So today, I am delighted to be joined here in Germany by Jude Blanchette, who, as listeners to the show will remember from a number of appearances on Seneca, had been working on this book for... Well, we had, had you on back in, what, it was like March 2016, right? Yep. Anyway, welcome to the show, Jude. Thank you very much. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I remember it takes me back, though. So that was like one of the last shows that we did in our dingy old studio before, right, yeah, yeah. before joining SubChina and coming to the States. Uh, that was, gosh, you know, we had you back on again to talk about Xi Jinping's Long Hot Summer we had you on to talk about, uh, in December, to about the uh, 40th anniversary of the opening. That was a live show we did in New York. That was a great one. You've been hard at work on this book, uh, China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, uh, which is actually officially released perhaps not coincidentally, on June 3rd, which is tomorrow, uh, at the time of our recording here on Sunday morning. Uh, since then, Jude, uh, you left the conference board uh, in Beijing. You now cover China for the Clumpton Group in D.C. So anyway, well, welcome back, man. Congrats on the book.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So this was your first book, and uh, having talked to lots of people who have you know, written books the first time, uh, I, I always feel like I'm asking them about their first experience of childbirth or pregnancy and childbirth. Um, how was the whole experience for you, man?
1: Yeah. If anyone wants advice on how not to write a book, um, I, I I feel I can mo- offer more in that uh, <laughs> in that vein than I can on, on how to write a book. Um, the, the experience was incredibly helpful and beneficial because it gives a structure that forced me to read intensely and deeply about a, a narrower set of topics. Right. So um, I started out the project not really knowing anything about this topic. And so in that sense, writing a book is a great way to learn about something. Um, so I would do it in a heartbeat, uh, again on a different topic for that same reason. On the other hand, it's really hard to write a book. I've learned uh, <laughs> it's really hard to write a, a chapter that is that is well paced and moves along and is uh, um, you know moves your argument along. So I have a lot of respect for people who can write good books, and I think just even getting to sixty five thousand words of Partially persuasive text for me was a was a was a real lift and a struggle.
0: Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I can imagine. I, I've tried it before. Um, my wife at one point just gave me a year and said, "Yeah, go for it. If you can, you can produce four chapters and a proposal and, and get a, a deal. Go for it. We'll just eat savings for a while." But uh didn't work out. <laughs> I just kind of. I guess it takes a little more than prepping for a podcast. Huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, although yeah, I think the 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 sort of piece of advice I would give myself or anyone who's thinking about doing it is. Um, It's that old logic of complex, big tasks are just a series of interlinked, smaller tasks. And so I, for years, the reason it was taking me so long is not because I was buried away in the study, making a lot of progress on this massive tome. I mean, the book is only 160 pages uh, before footnotes and before endnotes. I just kept thinking, all right, because I had a day job this this entire time. So I kept thinking, all right, I'll wait for a vacation. And then I'll, I'll do 500 hours in a row of the book. Um, and I realized I was really only making progress on it when you'd spend every day 30 minutes. Yeah. And just do that with-
0: Knock out a, a couple of paragraphs. Exactly. Yeah. That,
1: yeah. that was where progress happens, not, not this, uh, oh, I'll spend my whole weekend working on it. Because- I don't have that attention span, and, and my weekends are for craft beer and video games. So. Okay.
0: <laughs> that is good advice, man. I'm a, Seriously, at some point, I'm going to have to try my hand at it again, and I will uh, again ask you for not what not to do. Um, I don't know how much you can say about how much it's morphed from the time you first pitched it um, to the book that, that I just finished. It, it seems to me that there's less emphasis than you originally had talked about, uh, including about... the first decade of reforms right. about, you know, I mean, I, I, I sort of expected, I mean, I just full disclosure, I read your book in, in draft, and I was a little surprised uh, when we talked about that, that maybe your publishers had pushed you a little more toward talking about more recent instances of Neo-Maoism rather than the, the first, the, the, the 80s, and, you know, Deng Li and and Chen uh, and Yun and the likes. Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's the the book that is now coming out is actually the book as it was first conceived of the publisher. But after I started working on it, I went off on my own tangent and uh. started taking the book in a direction that was more about, I just became fascinated with the 1980s. And as I was doing research, I, I really got stuck in that period. And so wrote out a bunch of chapters uh, on, on various debates and, and uh, individuals and intellectual currents of the 1980s. And as it got closer to publication time, um, just realized that there was not total alignment uh, between me and and uh, what the what the publisher was was expecting, so kind of had to leave a lot of that on the um, uh, leave that behind. So if, well, any, can, if anyone wants to read spare chapters about Wham's nineteen eighty five uh, concert <laughs> in Beijing and and what the uh, what the pushback from uh, conservatives in the party was, I'd, I'd be happy to share it with them.
0: Well, I'm gonna make sure to ask you about that. I mean, because actually, let, let's let's do that. Let's take take a little time and and talk about what you did end up leaving on the on the cutting room floor. Uh, but first of all, I mean, you you ended up with this intro which I hadn't read, uh, which was just fantastically coincidental. I mean, you you were probably kind of delighted by the events surrounding the death of a certain Yao uh, Weiming is his name, right? Yao Weiming. Uh, maybe that's too macabre of a description. You were delighted. Intrigued. Yeah, but yeah. You, you must have recognized that it was kind of an authorial windfall, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy. Uh, so he the editor of the most prominent neo Maoist website Utopia, and he, well, you can you can explain the circumstances of his death, but it was you know total Deus ex machina for your book, right? I mean, yeah. the guy embodies all the, the major themes of your book about uh, the fraught relationship between the radical left and the mainstream, if you will, you know, Chinese Communist Party, especially here now in, in the days of Xi Jinping. So maybe you can talk about uh, about Diao Ming, the circumstances of his death in in North Korea. And and how he does sort of—he's a perfect vehicle to take us into this book.
1: Yeah, and it's a little clickbaity to open up the book this way, but um, for 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 those of you who remember, um, in the spring of last year, there was this mysterious bus crash in in North Korea, and I first heard about it, I think, through Bill Bishop tweeting out something—a uh, rumor that that Mao Zedong's grandson had died in North Korea in some uh, a bus crash on a rainy night in a road outside of Pyongyang, and. So immediately, that, that's for, for Chinese politics. That's fascinating stuff right. of why is, he, why is he in North Korea? What, what was this bus crash? And for me, it became even more intriguing when I found out that this was actually a, a group of, of tourists from China who'd been organized by, by Utopia, this, this prominent neo-Maoist website. And they'd been there doing one of their normal trips to North Korea. They do uh, to go see the, the tomb of or the grave of, of Mao Zedong's son, Mao Anying, who, who died in the Korean War. Um, and the leader of this group, Diao uh, Weiming, the, the guy you mentioned, I started digging into and found that in many ways he was a parallel for the, the journey of most of the people I talked about in the book, which is individuals who, although at first came to see the promise of a newly opening China, soon began to reflect upon and get angered by the costs of that of that uh, of that reform agenda. So he moved down to born in Shanghai moved down to, to Shenzhen, uh, began working at a, a relative's company and began to see the treatment of migrant laborers right. in Shenzhen, who were kind of being chewed and spit out by the factory of the world, you know, these companies down there who were producing goods for cheap goods for the rest of the world. Right, And so that was his real political awakening. And through there, began to seek out individuals who were also sharing concerns about uh, some of the costs of reform. And like many people I interviewed, as he began browsing the web, came across this this website called Utopia, and began to see for the first time, a community of individuals who shared those same sets of concerns. So he actually hooked up with with Utopia, ended up joining joining the organization and began working on North Korea and so began taking individuals to travel to North Korea. And started a a tourist agency called Spark Travel.
0: Spark is a reference to a single spark.
1: Single spark can a prairie fire. Uh, not a Mao Zedong quote originally, but one that Mao made Mao made famous. Right. So he was he was the leader of this trip to North Korea, and not only was is his story fascinating and the story of why the heck they were in North Korea, but also how this the news of the bus crash was originally suppressed. Uh, suppressed. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, was just very fascinating because it it, and this is what hopefully some of the book teases out is the relationship that the Communist Party has towards a group like Utopia specifically, but more generally, what is the relationship between the the, the quote unquote the left um, or the individuals who still cling to a socialist vision for the country and and the Communist Party of China, and that is a, a fraught, complex relationship and one that has been evolving you know, for decades and continues to, to evolve now.
0: I'm curious, was Diao himself a Communist Party member?
1: That's a good question. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, it was piecing together that that initial introduction was actually quite difficult because...
0: Yeah, it's limited sources. You were uh, here, so I didn't know, States, I right. didn't really
1: know about, I knew I knew the name because he was prominent on Neo Maoist websites, but I, I'd never met him and interacted with him. Right. So I kind of had to piece that together by talking to people who knew him and the paper trail that was left online. Right. Um, the, the, just a, a, sh- a short aside on the issue of Communist Party membership: a lot of the people involved in neo Maoism are are not party members. Right, that's uh, was um, my, my assumption. And, and and so you see, uh, uh, this is why it's a legitimate grassroots independent movement with a lot of people, so T J Y, people outside of the system, mm-hmm. um, who are throwing bombs from the from the sidelines, so to
0: speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I a month or so ago, I recommended a couple of books that I had just read. About the rise of of American far right groups, you know various racist groups, you know militia movements, posse comitatus, and you know um, white identitarian types. Uh, You know these have been the focus of a lot of attention, especially since Charlottesville. Uh, I see incredible parallels between these two Uh, phenomena. Actually, I would would probably judge the Chinese. ultra left maybe less harshly than i would judge the the uh although i mean I, they don't have maybe the propensity to carry out horrific acts of violence although they're also apologetic about about horrific acts of violence in 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 china's hist- history but i mean they both suck for the record uh there, there there's a lot of parallels so i mean there's the same kind of fundamentalism the same suspicion of elites uh, their ideology is built on a sense of betrayal not just of of the the purity of the original you know marxism leninism Muslim, but also the betrayal of these people they purport to represent right. uh, you know the, the working class just like right. you know the the American right is all about the coal miners yeah. and whatnot yeah
1: yeah they both there's there's a there's a deep Shared sense of of populism yeah. um, in both, and I should say that the original, for me, the original spark of the of this book, or one of the ways I framed it, in my initial proposal to to the publisher was, I was this was back in two thousand and twelve when I started working on this, where where the Tea Party was much more prominent then. right, but I I saw direct parallels between. The neo-Maoists who are on the left and and Tea Partyists who are who are on the right started with a a deification of a founding father, right? So in the case of a Tea Party rally, if you were to go to one in 2009 or 10, you'd see people dressed up in Jefferson, Jefferson, right? Jefferson and they'd be holding the Gadsden flag, and so there was a, a a direct linkage between the 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 um, c- connection to the founding ideals. Um, Misinterpreted, malinterpreted, perverted, however you want to say it, but nonetheless, a legitimate sense that we're the rightful heirs to the vision the Founding Fathers first promulgated and Neo Maoists, who obviously the Founding Father is, is Mao Zedong. And they, they both guard the legacy of the Founding Fathers um, because they, they believe, and I, I think rightfully so, um, that the power of historical myths for the legitimacy of a, of a country or, or a government. And so for the Neo Maoists, you can't seat an inch on, on on Mao Zedong because if you tarnish the founding father of China, well, what does that say about the nation and, 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 the, and the, the ideals that the nation was built upon? And I think same with, same with the, the right and their jealous guarding of, of the founding fathers and the legacy of the founding fathers. So just a, a, I remember in 2004 or so when the book came out on Sally Hemings, who right. was-
0: Jefferson's who, um, slave. Slave, who, right. who
1: they'd also uh, fathered a child by. And I remember at the time, National Review and other uh, right-leaning publications were were outraged by the book uh, and tried their best to poke holes in the scholarship of it. I, I think less because they had a legitimate beef with the historiography of the book and more because they recognized or they thought there was a threat of uh, of dethroning uh, Thomas Jefferson because so much of the political program is is built on at least a some strong identification with with Thomas Jefferson.
0: Exactly, I remember that Trump during the controversy of removal of Confederate monuments in the South, just ahead of Charlottesville, he was saying, "What next, Thomas exactly. Jefferson?" Yeah, I exactly. mean, right, right, right. And, and
1: again, you could hear ex- parallel quotes from, and I in the book, I've got a lot of parallel quotes from people on the left saying, "Look, once once we dethrone Mao Zedong, what's next? What's you know." Um, we're going to go after we're you know we're going to uh, Sun Yat-sen, we're, we're going to go <laughs> after so um yeah same again and i don't want to i don't want to step in the middle of a partisan debate here i'm not'm I'm, it's less that um, too late <laughs> well yeah, but I just think there there are really interesting parallels um between china 's domestic political currents and how m- political movements work in in China and how they work other places in the world
0: right right. Funny, I just read Joseph Ellis's Founding Brothers, which is great, really terrific book. Uh, Ellis himself uh, ended up coming around on this idea of Sal- Sally Hemings. He originally was very, very opposed to the idea, and then later on, with you know the genetic evidence, it's pretty indisputable that there were all these people who were yeah. Anyway, wow, fascinating. So, you know, one of the, the similar features, of course, is they both use the internet extensively right. and, and very well. I should say uh for mobilization. Uh here in the United States, of course, there's this whole process. There's this sort of funnel where they get you if you're, you know, if you're somebody who maybe, you know, has sympathies for uh the the, the men's rights reaction to, to strident feminism, or if you're one of these people who uh feels victimized by affirmative action, you know, left out of opportunity because you're a white male, uh they try to get you with some sort of this stuff. And then there's this kind of uh, path they lead you down that eventually leads to this kind of red pill moment where they present you with this, you know, that 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 thing that trope from the Matrix. Um, is is there something like that? Do you see, do you see parallels like that for uh, online radicalization in China? Uh,
1: but I would say less less top down, and and just again, I because uh, I don't want to continue stepping in, in a partisan debate. I think this is just a form of how. Um, how a lot of online communities form, right? Whether this could be this could be ISIS, this could be the Flat Earth Society. Um there's a lot of there's a lot of of, of groups who you see a similar similar pattern by by insofar as how people come into a group, how they first find a, a group. So these are marginalized disaffected individuals who feel like the mainstream, however you define that, the mainstream or elite institutions are not listening to them. Uh 4chan is another example. Sure, sure, so, sure. so you go out in search of um of individuals who share a same uh, perspective, and you find you begin organically um grouping around certain key nodes, you know, websites or publications or radio shows or you know, Alex Jones's show. Um and communities are, are built that way. Almost to uh, quote from F. A. Hayek, the great libertarian economist, you know, a sort <laughs> of spontaneous order by which uh, these groups form and and, and neo-Maoists wouldn't have existed as a movement had it not been for the internet
0: right was and, there a, an internet moment that galvanized them i mean maybe like was it the 99 embassy bombing or was uh, yeah. anything like that that
1: yeah that that period between between the embassy bombing so this is the 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 nato bombing of the chinese embassy in, in belgrade in in 1999 uh, which was um despite uh, I think, despite good evidence that it was a an, an accident, nonetheless, for for Chinese nationalists and for a lot of ch- normal Chinese people, this is a really galvanizing moment. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, I have yes. To... It's hard to believe that such a, a such a catastrophic mistake right. could, could have could have been made. But starting in the late '90s, but I think that the specific moment with which the internet became fundamental for neo Maoists was um, after the Three Represents, which was Jiang Zemin's. Um,
0: which Wait, we'll, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, after the three, yeah, sure. So,
1: after, well, we, we I'll put it aside for what that was for a moment, but uh, several key print publications were shut down by Jung Zemin um, in 2002, 2003. And these are old established, thick theoretical journals, but right. nonetheless had been few uh, essentially the only remaining outlets for we call you know, conservative disaffected intellectuals left, yeah. disaffected who were who were unhappy with China's development trajectory. And after those publications were shut down, they really looked cast about to see what to do next. And I think had there been no internet, it would have been quite difficult for them to reconstitute a movement. But they saw this fledgling piece of information technology which was out there and, and this is the early days of of you know BBS of right. bulletin boards so quite crude but nonetheless this provided a, a public square so to speak where where individuals could come together
0: no less crude than reddit uh, totally right? yeah yep. I mean it's the same kind of yep. thing right it's uh, pretty amazing um, so I want to just turn now and start talking about uh, what it is that we miss when we don't pay attention to these guys. I mean, you you talk in your in your book about the tendency for us China watching types to devote a lot of attention to intellectuals in China who are sort of on our side, as it were, the liberal minded, sort of reform minded. Or even dissident uh, intellectuals who advocate for a kind of basket of values that we share you know for for rule of law and for universal human rights and 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 what have you um, i I would certainly agree with that, uh, but I guess my usual thing is, hey, but look at the mainstream intellectual uh, and that's that's usually what i my response to to when i when I see so much attention devoted to people you know on the, the liberal fringe. I, I tend to say, hey, look, you know, let, let's, let's try to understand the David Brooks. Who's the David Brooks of China? Right. I mean, this is the sort of, you know, moderate conservative, like, right. you know, a yeah, barometer
1: getting, of where the, r- the conventional wisdom exactly, is.
0: Exactly. Right. right. So I, I'm, I'm always. But you're you're right, though, that that we need also to pay attention to the people who are out there on the fringe. You know, we shouldn't be too dismissive of them because they really are in in dialogue, and they still are a relevant part of the conversation. There, what are we missing though when we when we ignore the conservative reaction to reform?
1: Yeah, I should just to step back a moment and say that I don't pretend like I've always been looking for uh, for these conservatives. I think for for most of my formative time looking at the the current of ideas that was impacting China, I I too was looking at. Signs of, of hope and, and signs that individuals in China who shared a set of values, as the rest of us, were are we're in the we're in the majority and we're, we're moving policy in a direction uh, that that we all agreed with. So I think it's quite natural that you 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 look for um, you know, confirmation bias. And so sure. it, it it really wasn't until China's politics began to shift in a different direction that I I think there's a you as well, China watchers began to try to find. Um, what's what's motivating this shift, what's influencing this shift? And that's when I began to look at the Neo-Maoists, and that was really the first time. And through the process of, of understanding where the Neo-Maoists came from, that's when I was really opened up to this whole other world of discourse that had always been there um, and had undulated in strength throughout the past four decades, but had been the sort of the, the, the shadow of the reform movement and the shadow of the reformers. Right, and so whereas I would thought it was a much more linear progression from, let's say, 1978, you know, the the, the vaunted uh, third plenum, where where reform and opening, you know, anomaly was was first uh, promulgated straight through, say, WTO, um, I thought that was a fairly linear journey, except for a a deviation in, in 1989, June 4th. Uh But what I realized is there'd always been this intellectual ideological struggle that had been going on and right. on on net. Uh, China did reform over those three decades. I think now we're in this moment of of buyer's remorse, where we're sort of saying we got the whole thing wrong, and and uh, you know the whole bet on China was was misplaced. But I I think it's it's um, a little short-sighted to to not recognize that China did go through some pretty significant political and economic transformations over the past three decades, and f- for the better. Um, but nonetheless, it wasn't as seamless a victory as as I initially thought. And by by not understanding or the complexity of that debate, we really missed how imperiled, uh, oftentimes, the the reform agenda was. Yeah. And and now, to me, looking at how neo Maoists, for example, have moved from being outside dissidents who were calling for the overthrow of the Communist Party to essentially sort of quiescent brown shirts working for the party, that tells me a lot about where the
0: where the politics where moved, the politics yeah. of the party are. Just in in more recent years, yeah, yeah so absolutely, yeah, the last decade. So it's our the imposition of our good old Whiggish teleology, right, on on this whole process. Yeah, and, that,
1: and that's I mean that this is not just a China thing, right? So no. we always do this. We we, all, ed, yeah. we invade a country. We we sort of we look for the Ahmed Chalabi who we think shares our you know, shares our <laughs> values, yeah, yeah, and yeah. we think if if we get them in place, everything will be all right. So so I I, um, I should have looked it up in advance, and uh, uh, maybe we can put a link in like, the recommendation section. But there was a, a piece someone did about. After um about Saudi Arabia and uh, about for the past three decades we've always talked about finding a reformer. And, right. We thought it was MBS. MBS, yes, right? right? And so this is a this is a structural element of American politics. We're we're always looking for the, the reformer, you know, white knight reformer.
0: Yeah, I mean the the, the perennial hope for China's Gorbachev, right? Yeah. We were always looking for that guy. Uh, we, we talk about the 80s a lot, um, and your book does, as as this period where, at least within the sort of newly unencumbered intelligentsia, there was quite a, a bit of intellectual ferment going on, uh, a lot of, of kind of grand ideas that gained currency momentarily. Uh, I want to talk about one of those ideas in particular. It's one that I looked at quite a bit while I was a graduate student in the early 1990s in connection with technocracy because they really were sort of of a piece, that whole sort of obsession with Singaporean style, uh, neo authoritarianism Sin jui And this figures in your book. And it strikes me that it, it's interesting because it seems to be sort of one of the a common ancestor mm. between uh, both the kind of dungist uh, economic liberalization with political control on the one hand, and the neo Maoists they, they sort of find their, their origins in that period too, as you suggest. Can you talk a little bit about the sintroi
1: Yeah, so out of this period of the 1980s, we began to see, as the, as the public square opened up, which it did, it was a time of great intellectual you know, ferment and, and enlivenment, and chaos, and all, all the, all the you know, amazing things that were happening in the 1980s leading up through 1989. But out of that period, when you have a more open public square, uh, you have a multiplicity in a, a, of ideas, and one of these was a reaction to um, incipient problems in the reform agenda that were already being noticed by the early 1980s, right? So people who were looking at issues of state capacity, i.e. how effective at governance is the, um, is the government and the, and the Communist Party, and seeing that liberalization had led to a deterioration of the, the government's ability to push, push and implement policy. You saw a rise in crime that was happening as the party was releasing um, its control over, over the economy. You saw, you saw corruption on the rise, um, economic crimes as they call them. Um, so you saw a host of problems that were, were emanating out of the reform agenda. And as individuals began to look at it, um, they began to see that we needed to find a better balance between what appeared to be this unplanned chaos that China was moving towards in reform and, and opening and the the older uh, uh, much more centrally directed control we need to find a balance one of the individuals who was uh, an early important progenitor of, of new authoritarianism was was wang huning
0: wang huning of course now sits on the Politburo uh, standing committee or stands on the Politburo yeah. standing <laughs> committee uh, he he's the, the party ideologue right, right. you know the, right. the only sort of academic who's on right.
1: and at the time in the mid 1980s he was this brilliant young political scientist at at fudan university um, who was fascinated by Singapore, and he actually led or was a coach on the Fudan University debate team when they made this trip out to, out to Singapore. And he you can find this um, article online on the website iSoSyang. He wrote this very long uh, love letter, essentially, to, to Singapore about his time there. And he was just fascinated by the wealth created by Singapore, but the order and control. And this seemed to indicate that there was a third way between the, you know, the, quote, unquote, chaos of the market and, and the stifling uh, control of, of central planning, that there was this, n- new, this new way to do it. So Wang Huning and a group of individuals uh, in, in the late 1980s began putting flesh on this new authoritarianism. And as you say, it, it was even attractive to the, the reformers like Zhao Ziyang and, and Deng Xiaoping who yeah, saw in much. it- um, who saw in it the, the wealth-generating um, possibilities of a more robust market, but one within the iron cage of, of party control. Right. Within and,
0: the four walls of the four cardinal principles. Right. right
1: exactly. Exactly. And so after 1989, neo-authoritarianism authoritarianism, um, loses a little bit of its cachet because of its identification with Zhao Ziyang, who was, of course, purged um, right, after, right after June 4th, when he was then serving as general secretary. But it's rebranded again. And so we see a, a variety of, of new isms that emerge out of, of 1989. New statism, which was closely identified with an intellectual named Hussin. Uh-huh. Uh, you see a lot of new isms coming out of this, this, this period, and a lot of them are reactions to 1989 and then, importantly, 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union.
0: Let's talk about 89. I mean, since we're, we're only three days away right now uh, from the anniversary. The thirtieth anniversary. Um, How does the radical left in China view the protests of '89 and their bloody, brutal denouement? Is there some interpretation that we don't see?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think you would think, given given what we know about the current political program of neo Maoism, that they would either, you know, they would minimize or or deny that there was any sort of massacre on June Fourth. But in fact, that's not the case. Right. You you, you find that a lot of them are. Really, um, there's actually a much more nuanced position on things like the Cultural Revolution and June 4th than you would originally think, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. recognizing that, that the party overreacted, that the party had stifled legitimate democratic voices who were calling for, for robust change. Part of it is just our own misunderstanding of, of the multiplicity of voices who were present at June 4th. So not everyone there was necessarily a liberal, right? right? And so there's a lot of Neo-Maoists, older generation of Neo-Maoists who, who were there, um, and and who were present and who were very sympathetic and remain sympathetic to the students who were in who were in Tiananmen Square uh, for those couple months, um, so that's not a good predictor uh, of of where their politics are are, are today.
0: No, I remember being in the square and seeing guys carrying Mao, yep. p- p- you know, posters or I mean, you know, actual portraits of Mao carrying them. They had been sort of nailed to to stakes. And he, they were carrying them around, and I, I wasn't sure what was going on. I thought it was ironic. Yeah, uh, I thought it was just sort of being done ironically, but yeah. no, it wasn't. That's that's fascinating. So, um, eighty nine, yeah. So no, you, uh, you're you're right, and uh, I think that that's something that that really bears a lot of examining. Uh, it's it's really fascinating what the reactions are because, again, some of the other people who were, again, not neo Maoists, but people characters who went on to form the so called new left. Exactly. Yep. were very much participating in this. I mean, in fact, the name most commonly associated, Wang Hui, yep. uh, Wang Hui was himself a participant in the demonstrations. He was, you know, maybe a decade older, so he was in his 30s already when this was happening. He was actually investigated for this. Yep. He actually like did a year, like in some, not Lao Guy or anything like that. It was just sort of, you know, he was being rehabilitated or whatever, uh, not imprisoned or anything. But often, I think Sichuan Province or something. Uh, but then. Went on to become a real advocate for state-owned enterprises, a real advocate for more state role in, in the in the economy, but also uh, an advocate for the addressing of a lot of the inequalities that emerged from, um, you know, really headlong, breakneck re- reform.
1: Yeah, just a, a as you're saying that, just a, a really interesting and to me understudied historical moment is right after 1989. I think that first fall. For the next couple of years, every incoming, all incoming freshmen at Fudan University and Peking University had to go off for mandatory military training. Right. So I've, I've interviewed a bunch of the Neo-Maoists who were, who were incoming freshmen into, into Beida, Peking University, right after right after June 1st. And they ended up spending a year in Shijiazhuang, the military academy, which is, what, is that about an hour south. Hour, hour and a half southwest, south yeah, Beijing. yeah, southwest of
0: Beijing, um, Rockville,
1: right, and that really, yeah, exactly. That's and,
0: the funniest thing. I mean, they call Rockville, Maryland, Shijiazhuang, yes, yeah. is, which is hysterical.
1: Um, and and that was really a formative uh, period period for a lot of these folks who had come in expecting to go into this elite educational institution. Instead, they're doing military drills at this at this mil- at this base, um, and they have to do it for a year. and And a few of people who I interviewed who spent time there said this was really when they first began to. Um, have a negative opinion about the Communist Party because it had essentially taken their lifelong dream, and they had been, you know, of, of going into you know China's most storied university. Instead, they're uh, they're doing calisthenics in the morning and, and, and eating bad military food. So that's another interesting piece of this. Is the the um, although we think of the neo-Maoists now as being guardians of the Communist Party, it's it's really had a very complex relationship with with the CCP over the past couple decades, moving in from you know a, a ally to opponent um, and formative experiences a lot of these people with the party uh, helped shape how they looked at uh, they looked at the communist party
0: um, Let's get back to this the new left movement, which is something I'm pretty fascinated with because it, it's, it does, doesn't it's not easily characterized it's not easily categorized uh, how would you where do you place it how how are, do they relate to the neo- maoists and how do they relate to um, the mainstream cCP?
1: Yeah. So, so just a, a potted history of the new left is that um, started in the e- early 1990s and primarily from a group of, of academics, young Chinese academics who'd studied largely in the United States who uh, so had been trained in metho- methodology and discourse of of social sciences here in the West. Um, and so they bring these tools back and they begin analyzing China's reform agenda through the, the prism or the lens of, quote unquote, Western methodology.
0: We just say they learned a the Western critique of capitalism. Exactly. Right?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Right. Exactly. Um, and so the left in China in the 1990s and early 2000s was fairly ecumenical. And you had a lot of boundary blurring. It hadn't really hardened into these lines of, let's say, sort of Neo-Baoists and, and New Left. It's also worth mentioning that the term New Left is, of course, contested by almost everyone we put in the in the New Left. Right, As most like of it. these labels are, they're they're usually pejoratives that are created by outsiders. Uh, so a lot of New Left don't see anything that they're that anything concrete that is that is the New Left. But nonetheless, if you look at the the late nineties, early two thousands. There's a lot of interaction amongst all these um, all these left in intellectuals who later on would would uh, occupy opposing opposing parts of the spectrum. Uh, but nonetheless, at the time they shared a common concern about where China was headed, things like entrance into the WTO. Things like SOE privatization, which which took off in the mid nineteen nineties and led led to tens of millions of of layoffs in really concentrated pockets in China's uh, in China's old industrial uh, heartland. And the
0: third thing would be the three represents. The three
1: represents, right? So
0: let's do that. I mean, so Jiang Jiang Zemin and his his premier Zhu Rongji, they they did a whole lot of things that pissed off people uh, all across the the left, right? Um, the neo Maoists, the you know the the new left as well. Uh, there's this, like you said, a, a push to reform state-owned enterprises and to privatize a lot of state assets. Uh, and we can talk about this. You know, Larry Long controversy uh, with regard to that. There was, um, as you say, China's push to join the WTO, which you know I think the new left saw as like a, a way to kind of shackle China to, you know, to the under the yoke of of global capitalism. And then there was. The three represents So let's do these in order. These these three things. Let's start by talking about SOE reform and the Larry Long affair.
1: Yeah. So I think most of us know the story of SOEs as being these large, bloated organizations. Which I think a more neoliberal critique would say that these are nothing but a big productivity drag on China's economy. Chinese officials believed that as well in the mid 1990s, and and under the pre- then premier Zhu Rongji, set out a very aggressive attempt to. Shrink the size of the state-owned economy, in part to free up labor to move to other more productive, uh, productive areas uh, of China. So migrants were now freed up to head down to the south and begin taking up positions at private factories, for example. But what this did is this, this led to estimated 40 million layoffs where you suddenly had all these workers who had believed they were part of this social contract wherein they would spend their lives working at a, a SOE and, and be within that tanwei, that that unit, and that's where they got their health care, their education.
0: Suddenly- shagong was the, the, the zeitgeist word of the right. moment, right?
1: Yep, yep, to lose your job. So suddenly had had the Communist Party uh, declaring that, actually, no, that isn't the contract, and we're going to tear that up, and you're, you're out on your own, and you don't really have many skills to, to be able to compete in this new economy. So- this was, in the 1990s, a really important catalyst for this embryonic leftist movement, which is beginning to take some sort of organizational form. And at that point, it was just really surrounding a couple key publications. One is called Zhongliu, or Midstream, and the other is Zhenli de Juecho, which is The Pursuit of Truth. And and these were really minority-read publications. I mean, these were real, real dusty tomes. But, but nonetheless, they were very influential within the sort of TGN, within the system, right? So a lot of older cadres, a lot of retired cadres uh, w- would be writing in these publications. And and these would be circulated around elite groups in, in policymaking circles. Second thing is uh, entrance into the WTO, which... Uh, was framed for the left as a selling out to, to capitalists, but crucially, and I think importantly, um, for those who were looking to oppose China's entrance into the WTO, they framed it as a in, in an old anti-imperialist uh, narrative, which is global capital coming into the United coming into China is a return to the exploitation of, of foreign powers in the 19th century, right? So th- they connected it with this o- or older organic, concern that, that the Chinese people had, which had, which had been around for, for more than 100 years. Um, so in addition to having the economic argument against the WTO, i.e. people saying, look, this is going to decimate our own domestic industries and our, our um, emergent private companies aren't ready to compete with global companies yet. So you had that narrow economic argument you also had this political argument which is this is an, this is another um betrayal of the chinese people by the by the chinese government to allow foreign imperialists to come in and consume chinese resources uh, to their benefit so well in
0: hindsight i think i would have been persuaded by that argument i can't say that china wasn't shackled to uh global capitalism in in some pretty obviously negative ways as well but um I wanted you to to talk a little bit about larry long and that that case or uh, about s o e reforms right. maybe just go back and fill that in real quick
1: yeah so um to try to in the book to try to tell this story in a little bit more of an interesting way and again i I just always tried to find individuals to tell these stories um there's a really fascinating character who I knew of when I was living in China, but didn't know his backstory. Anytime you'd go to a, a Xinhua bookstore, you'd see this guy, Long Xianping. Right. Larry Long. I mean. You, you know, For anyone who's lived in China, you'd recognize him right exactly, away. Yeah. Uh, Salt-and-pepper hair, glasses-
0: and- He's Taiwan-born, right? Taiwan-born right, right, right. and
1: did his, his PhD in University of Pennsylvania. Right. Um, couldn't get a job here in the United States. Uh, later said he could have if he wanted to, but then moved to Hong Kong and then finally moved up to, to uh, mainland in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, I, fr- I forget which, and made a name for himself of writing these biting exposés of, of Chinese companies and became quite controversial for- right what many people thought was him writing uh, takedowns of companies because he was being paid by by competitors. And in 2004, he gives this uh, speech at Fudan University where he he accuses a prominent chinese entrepreneur of essentially corruption through a mechanism a legal mechanism called a management buyout an MBO right right and and an MBO just the very very short version is it's de facto privatization but without having to call it privatization you basically the the existing management of a of a state owned company um, will get bargain basement prices to take over, to take, to take the company
0: private. And uh, he saw echoes of what had happened in the Soviet and Union. In Russia in the, in the 1990s, right.
1: yep, the sort of oligarch cowboy capitalism. So he made this very prominent speech, which got a lot of media coverage, including, and this is to show you how different the times are, including in People's Daily and in a lot of uh, party-owned uh, media platforms. This became a, a real cause celeb. And shows, again, how different the public square is nowadays, where we just can't imagine having this, this robust debate on the nature of, of state-owned enterprise and, and public and private ownership. Crucially for, for the story of neo-Maoism, the neo maoists recognized that w- they could use this narrower issue on MBOs or management buyouts to drive a much larger discussion, which is what is the nature of our economy What does it mean to have state ownership? What is socialist about our economy? And so in a pattern that we saw repeated again and again over the the next 10 years or so, they would take a narrower issue or incident and tie it directly to a much more meta narrative about the the socialist direction of, of of the country. And so in the next year or so, as this debate is ongoing over management buyouts that Larry Long is doing his best to whip up, Utopia is sort of in the wake of that helping to to propel it forward and helping to keep the issue alive and it became such a uh, became such a public issue that the party ended up essentially banning and yeah, shutting down M- um and we don't know we have no direct evidence that it was there's no document tying this to the Larry the Larry Long issue. Um, but the best I, you know, best I can make of of, of the events surrounding it is that the public pressure and public outrage was such that the party responded with uh, with pulling back on MBOs. Okay,
0: because well, that of course happened during a different time. That was already in the who and when yeah. era, and the so olden- you know, that's, the golden age, right? That's there's there's <laughs> perhaps reasons why that happened. Let's talk about uh, the three represents. I mean, this was seen as an existential threat to what the party was and what it stood for. I mean, this is something that's dismissed all the time by China Watchers or, you know, by the maybe not so sophisticated ones. It's just... A piece of you know nonsense. Of uh, uh, I mean, it it does sound kind of preposterous, right? The party represents the most advanced forces of production. The party represents the most advanced cultural forces. The party represents uh, the broad interests of the Chinese masses. Well, it sounds like okay. So what is it? But what it really means was we're opening the party to participation by capitalists. Um,
1: or, or maybe I frame it, the we, the party needs to evolve. That's right. The organization needs to evolve to keep up with the times. Um, and so this is a piece, I think, of the post-89, post-91 restructuring of the party to make sure never again. So the belief that, you know, after 89, the party began to move more towards um, bringing students, and especially elite students, into the party after spending much of the 80s ignoring students. They realized um, that the threat there from having too much distance between students and the party. And, and likewise, in the 1990s, especially after 1992... Um, when Deng Xiaoping sort of revived and restarted the the reform agenda.
0: With his southern tour. His, yeah. His... Which, which we didn't talk about. Maybe we can make sure to, to insert something about – because, you know, I think you think we get the narrative a little wrong on that as well. Right? Yeah, so.
1: I, I, yeah, and I should point out, by the way, I I very nearly get the narrative wrong in the book until uh, the great Barry Naughton uh, sent some comments on my chapter <laughs> okay, saying good. not quite the way this took place. But, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to the southern tour, but just on, on the 3 represent story, After the private sector really starts to take off, or or I guess I should say, China's state capitalist model really begins to take off in the 1990s, of which private companies are an important part of that. The party recognized that what this meant is, as the economy became more uh, more private, more complex, the party just had less insight into what the heck was going on. Right. And so one of the one of the things to do to make sure that it, there isn't this huge gap and widening gap between the party and, and where the economy and society is going is you integrate with, you interlink with, or more cynically you could say you co-opt. And so Zhang Zemin announced this uh, in a speech in, in 2001 and formally enshrined in, in the party constitution uh, later on but this idea you that know, essentially three, capitalists right, yeah. are, are welcome into the party now. Right. And what's interesting is, and this is why making sure our own external observer lens is always being calibrated. At the time, everyone saw this as a capitulation, right? And so this absolutely fit our narrative of, look, they joined the WTO. Now they're allowing capitalists in. Uh, We've got information technology, i.e. the Internet is making its way there. It's a matter of time before this comes crumbling down or the party evolves into into something more liberal. But crucially, before we get too self-critical, a lot of the leftists saw the exact same thing. This was evidence that the party had tuck-tailed and was was submitting to global capitalists, and there's there's nothing communist about the Communist Party anymore. Right now, we know that's actually much more uh, much more complex what was going on behind the scenes. But nonetheless, what they were doing is making sure that the party was integrated with this, you know, expanding uh, private economy, and so. Um, Looking back now, from from the perspective of 2019, the integration with with the private sector really redounded to the to to the party's favor. I think absolutely, yeah. um,
0: it really saved the party. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. For to, better, for worse. <laughs> to the
1: issue of the the, the Southern tour, which which um, to me again, I learned so much in working on this book. The Southern tour was just one of these dates I knew was in, sort of a hinge moment date, but I thought it was just about essentially revive you know nineteen eighty nine conservatives take over for a couple of years nineteen ninety two dung goes south and yeah on that yeah um, mm-hmm. yeah and, and and that's not entirely wrong wrong as a narrative um but i have to, i think we have to frame it in, in as a part of this much larger context of dung's you know, Dung's getting very old. He, at this point, had given over all of his formal titles, right? So right. He, he held on to uh, being- Chairman of the Bridge chairman. Association, yeah. Right, but yeah, that's another thing, by the way. You, you often hear people say, you know, when Dung, Dung, real power, Dung had real power. He was only the chairman of the Bridge Association. Yeah, and he was the head of the military until 1989. Right, so, sure. so he had the guns on his side, and he was smart enough not to get rid of all his titles. But after 1989- he still was the by far the most important political figure in in the country, and gave up his final title because he knew he didn't need it anymore. Right. There was no one who could hold a candle to to Dung in terms of uh, revolutionary credibility, uh, and and uh, and and political credibility.
0: But still, by '92, he felt like he had to make the sort of flank maneuver. Right.
1: So. You know, Deng Xiaoping in 1992 recognizes his health is failing, and what he's concerned about really is the post-Deng era. Right? He doesn't know how much longer he's going to live, and he knows that he had been there for much of the 1980s, um, calling the the ultimate shots. Deng was always relatively removed from actual policy, and he would only step in when when the the two sides we could call him you know loosely, conservatives and reformers, when there was a, a dispute that was
0: at an uh, impasse. Yeah.
1: At an impasse, or it was threatening to, or one side had gone too far in ah, the right. reforming yeah. era, or one side had gone too far in a conservative tightening, Dung would finally step in. But he was happy to to sit back and and just as long as the ship was moving in generally the right direction. Problem is, Dung knows he's not going to be there forever. Right. So what he wants to do is essentially break Set the course. break the wheel. Right. To to uh, to quote uh, uh, Game of Thrones, he wants to break the wheel finally and make sure that this reform agenda with with you know within the the four cardinals. Guardrails is is going to be um, is going to be the new the new normal. Or as he said, no more debate. Right. We're done debating. We've had ten years to to, to debate. We've seen uh, we've seen what happens when the party is at each other's throat. So now we've decided it's my way. And so he. Gets on a train in beijing and he heads south uh, heads all the way down to to guangdong province goes to shenzhen goes to guangzhou
0: let we'll stopped stop in wuhan while they were delivered. the wuhan, first yeah. importance he stopped right? in right. shanghai yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but but essentially you know a takeaway from that is he was there to wag his finger and say this is it this is the way we're going to do things uh fr- from here on out um and it, and this was a tactic Mao would often use when you feel like you're not, you know, you're not getting the consensus you need in Beijing. You leave the capital and sort of go go out directly to the people, go out to to officials around the country, and build an external consensus. And that essentially did create a new paradigm. I should say it's a little bit more complex than this. There was also maneuverings of personnel uh, at the Fourteenth Party Congress later in 1992, and th- and that's really where we see. Jiang Zemin come into his own. We also see the next generation of leaders uh, uh, put into position, So Hu Jintao. So so Deng not only created the theoretical line which was going to guide party policy, but also made sure there was personnel in who who were going to follow his orders.
0: Let's get back up to the back into the two thousands. Uh, what the a period that I'm fascinated with, of course, this you know golden age that we we talk about. Uh, you know, Li Chung from Brookings used to talk about these two sort of dominant um, factions. And the Hu and Wen years represent a, a period where the so-called tuan pai were, were sort of in the ascent, right? Where you you have actual uh, interest in addressing some of the excesses right. of, the, of, of you know, uh, income inequality, of geographic inequalities, of... Uh, that maybe, you know, start, starting to be quite concerned about the plight of agrarian toil in China, of environmental degradation. This must have sounded good to the ears of your uh, new Maoists, and yet they seem to still have been sort of in active opposition at that time.
1: Yeah, that that's clearly there was a shift in policy in 2003, 2004, but but not long after Hu Jintao comes into power. Um, along with Wen Jiabao, who is the who is the, the premier then, um, but a real a real market shift from the the Jiang Zemin era, and and one that you know Barry Naughton in a great essay calls a sort of a, a pronounced left tilt uh, in policy. So you saw much more prominence of of rural agricultural issues uh, come to the fore of of uh, government policy. Um, you saw this talk of of harmony of you know harmonious development. So we're going to move away from at least nominally we're going to move away from the cutthroat. Some have to get rich first, you know. That that epitomize the the Jiang Zemin era of real elite technocratic pro capitalist policy. Right. Uh, we're going to rebalance back now towards. We're still going to have open markets. We're still going to be integrating with the global economy, but we're going to put more precedence on on solving domestic issues. And I think arguably the spread of information technology and the awareness now that Chinese people had of issues in other parts of the country was was playing a role of, in that. And and Utopia and the Neo-Maoists were also an important um, node of spreading stories about the maltreatment or mistreatment of, of migrant laborers. Some of the more horrendous cases of slavery and brick kilns. Right. Um, all these Inful things land, now which yeah. could have been contained... Uh, by local party cadres are now, again, not imperfectly, but are now beginning to spread more and there's more awareness and there's more pushback. Um, so this this kind of honeymoon between Neo-Maoists and, and the Hu Jintao era lasts about a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what I think began to happen is that the Neo-Maoists became much more dogmatic in their ideology. They began to see... Or they began to believe that within this left tilt, the Communist Party was also engaging with and bringing into elite circles individuals who, in the next couple of years, the neo-Maoists would, would come to openly call traitors. right? Uh, um, sorry, traitors with a T, not traitors. Right. right. Uh, not people who trade. <laughs> right. Um, so these are these are intellectuals like He Weifang, yep. Zhang Weying, Mao Yushu. Uh, people who G- exactly yeah. <laughs> people who we would call l- liberals right. uh, are now moving their way into the system, and so um, beginning around 2007 2008, you see a pronounced shift in the in the neo Maoist movement from kind of a pan leftist movement to much more dogmatic, um, much more conspiratorial, and much more wedded to the the historiography and the history of the Mao era.
0: There's also um, a, a sort of a foreign component to this when they they suddenly start th- with China's in the spotlight and they run up to the Olympics and suddenly the whole discourse on yep. on Tibet and yep. a whole of Two thousand
1: and eight was just absolutely crucial year. Yeah. Not only not only for the the global, global financial crisis, uh, which but
0: discredits American led capitalism as well. Exactly. Right?
1: Right. Yep. But but also because you had a series of domestic domestic and international events that involved China. Um, So you had the riots in Tibet. You had that incident where the the woman carrying the... So we obviously had the Olympics later in in August that year, but in the spring there was a a Chinese woman who was carrying the torch in France. Right. And the torch was knocked out of her hands. Leads to the Carrefour Yeah, uh, the Carrefour ban. Um, So you had a pretty extraordinary year in China in 2008. And I think now, by the way... um, after Xi Jinping came to power, a lot of us were marking sort of 2012 as the pivot year. Right? No, no, no. And now I think we're realizing we're really pulling back the timeline then. I think I, I've been on that for a while. You've been on that for a while, yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a, a consensus now that s- something in the water in 2008, 2009, in terms of do- domestic political currents but also international events, really um, nudged China's development trajectory in a different direction. And that's where you see the, the sort of hardline. the the sort of the if we have if we use the Feng Show dichotomy, uh, that that's really where the show, the the constriction period began. But even
0: as as that's happening, toward the end of that decade, they find a new champion in the Southwest Mm -hmm. in in Chongqing, right? And so they start gravitating toward Bo Xilai. Uh, I think any listener to the show is pretty familiar with Bo Xilai and all the events surrounding his downfall. But let's let's take it back a couple of years and talk about Bo in Chongqing about the Chongqing model, yeah. about, you know, sing red, strike black and all that stuff. And what was appealing about that to the Neo-Maoists?
1: Yeah, so we had this very unlikely uh, hero for the Neo-Maoists, this this um, besuited, um, you know, very slick. Cadre. Wow, he's, you know,
0: Trump for the... the yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah.
1: And, you know, his son was attending elite schools in in the U.K., um, he had worked for the Ministry of Commerce and had made a name for himself in attracting foreign capital to, to the city of Dalian, uh, where he was the party secretary. And he, his father uh, was, was party royalty. Um, so really, f- you know, um, interesting character. His wife was a, uh, was a very high-flying, prominent lawyer who'd written a book, How to Win a Lawsuit in America. Um, Bo Shilai is installed as party secretary in Chongqing, And again, just you can't imagine this happening today, but there was a period after he's installed in Chongqing where he's in sort of essentially open declaration that he has higher aspirations politically. But crucially, he's in a open policy debate with the party secretary of Guangdong province, Wang Yang.
0: Right, the, the Chongqing model versus the Guangdong model. Right?
1: Yes, right. Or they called it the cake debate.
0: Right. Right. Do you do you grow as, the cake, uh, or do, do you, you grow
1: really the cake, know? which is the the sort of more market friendly wangyang I- mm-hmm. idea? Uh, the you know rising tides lift all boats, or do you or you do better redistribute the cake, which is the the Chongqing model? The Chongqing model, um, which was really, I think, solidified around two thousand and nine, was a essentially an attempt to address some of these existing issues with China's development um, and some of the costs of development, right? So this is making it easier for migrants to stay in Chongqing and not face as many hukou pressures. Uh, this is about building more affordable housing, uh, better access to health care. Um, so it was really a package of ideas that was, uh, spoke absolutely to the center of what the neo-Maoists had been complaining about. Uh, so, you had this flock of intellectuals out to Chongqing. And I should add, so new left intellectuals uh, who are going out there. Henry Kissinger went out there and kissed the ring. Um, you know, Bo Lai was an absolute celebrity and a star in not only China, but internationally in this oh, yeah. sort of 2009, 2010 period. Articles in the New York Times about, you know, uh, a, general, a party secretary doing new things for a new China. Yeah, you know, and he's in <laughs> Chongqing. this just massively impressive city. Which anyone who's not been there, it's just a absolutely fantastic place and visually such a striking. It really is striking, striking city. It's, and it's you've intimidating got to me. you've it's... got cranes everywhere when yeah. Bo lies out there, right? And so this is ostensibly people people powered development that he's driving there. And then just to to uh, if you want to just put icing on the cake for the neo Maoists, he then does this kind of red revival where he um, says, "Look, we we've got this great." Treasure trove of um, revolutionary songs, revolutionary songs, and 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 that we need to we we got to dust this off, we got to celebrate this. So uh, he institutes this campaign of this sing red songs campaign and this red culture campaign, where he's no longer ashamed of the Communist Party's revolutionary history. He wants to bring it out and and celebrate it. Um, Now again, this is a manicured. Uh, he's not sort of saying He's not saying to revolt is right. He's not sort of bringing out the the unbridled Maoism of, uh, you know, of of take down the party apparatus and the, and the capitalists within the right. party. It's just this the is songs a, a, and the spirit. Yeah, thing, exactly. This yeah. is a real 1950s sort of safe revolutionary discourse about you know how great the Communist Party is. Uh, but nonetheless for the Omaoists, you know, this is the this is the you know, this is the best shot they've got and they went all in on it. And so they're sending tour groups out there on their website, they're, you know, writing article after article about Worshi Lie for General Secretary. I mean, this is sort of open election season.
0: I mean uh, that 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 was that proved to be his and their undoing though. Right. I mean in a lot of ways. Right.
1: Yeah. So the proximate cause is uh, I won't rehash this. Yeah. Wang well, Li uh, flight. Yeah, the proximate for, uh, cause is, is you know the, the murder of a British citizen Neil Haywood in the in a hotel uh, by uh, by by Bo Xilai's wife, Wang Lee Jun, who is Bo Xilai's right hand man and and. Uh, uh, the, the chief, of uh, chief of police and, and, and vice vice mayor, colorful yeah, yeah. colorful character fled to the uh, uh the consulate in, in nearby Chengdu in the American consulate nearby chengdu and he's he's uh consulate kicks him out he's thrown to the wolves and this leads to to bo Xilai's undoing and suddenly the party is shocked shocked that there is all this corruption going <laughs> on in Chongqing. how could we have known uh, and on March fourteenth uh, 2012, during the NPC, the Lianghui the two meetings um Wen Jiabao gives this amazing press conference where he warns of the, the, the sort of haunting specter of the Cultural Revolution that right. still hangs a Casa Paul over the country. You know, the, the Cultural Revolution has, has evolved to become this boogeyman you know, that if you ever want to, if you ever think the country's going too left, a leader can come out and say, you know, never forget the legacy of the Cultural Revolution.
0: Right, which is why, you know, the title of your book is so striking that you called in this new Red Guards. Oh, by the way, wasn't the title supposed to be Under the Red Flag? That was
1: my, that was my, yeah, that was my, my, uh, that was my second, that was the second iteration of title. The title that ended up being on the book is the title that was on the proposal when I submitted it to, to the publisher. Okay, okay. It, it, it's it's breathless and clickbaity, I'll, 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 I'll admit, um, because... I Now, it's one of these titles, you have, I have to spend time clarifying what it's not right. uh, rather than what it is. And it, it, is, it is not saying that um, this is why the word new is important in the title. I'm not saying that these are the old Red Guards and that we are going to expect neo-Maoists sort of parading through the, the streets, calling for the overthrow of the Communist Party. But nonetheless, I do think they, there's a reason Wen Jiabao chose to invoke the spirit of the cultural revolution when essentially he wanted to warn about the neo-Maoists and, and, uh, and Bo Xilai. Um, that there is this thread of radical politics, which is uh, which is always a th- which is always a threat to the Communist Party. And, and the um, the most powerful fuel for this radical style of politics is not the sort of Liu Xiaobo, uh, Ai Weiwei, you know, constitutional democracy. That's not what the party's really afraid of. It, it, it's more concerned about people who outflank it from the left.
0: And that brings us to today, right? You know, to what's happening right now, or that's happened in the last six months. Really, just as you were putting the manuscript to bed, uh, in in uh, in Beijing itself, with uh, from China's most prominent universities, these Marx these Marxist study groups uh, who have gotten involved in labor activism and have been detained to disappeared. Yeah. And tell us what's what's going on there, and how you read this into uh, the whole relationship between the neo Maoists and the CCP.
1: Yeah, absolutely fascinating, tragic but fascinating development that almost feels like this could have been from a hundred years ago when the Communist Party was, you know, when Mao Zedong was first acting as a labor and, and, you know, a worker a- advocate in down in Hunan Province. Um, you've got this group of of students at China's most elite universities who have uh, found common cause with disaffected workers from this one company called Jasic, J A S I C. Uh, who had been starting last summer who who had been really poorly treated and um, had decided that they wanted to form form a union. Um, and the party just came crashing down on these uh, these the, the workers and then the students who were who were advocating on their behalf with a intensity and a violence that I, I really caught people off guard. Yeah, but yeah. what made it so striking was these are students who were framing their um, their work on behalf of the workers. Squarely within the sort of Mao Zedong Communist Party, we take what you have said seriously um, um, everything had been framed in a way that made it uh, very difficult or at least there was it was jarring to see the Communist Party of China crack down on students who were acting on behalf of Marx and communism to help uh, the the most disadvantaged within China. That was so striking. Yeah, about Yeah, jarring
0: for some people. I mean, James Palmer was uh, the the Asia editor for Foreign Policy. He and I don't agree on everything, but one thing that he said I thought was just amazing, which was just perfectly honest. Is communists going after other communists for not being the right kind of it's communist. The Most communist thing a, ever. Yeah, exactly. Sure. he's absolutely right. Sure.
1: but this 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 was not some internecine feud between no. you know Stalin and Trotsky. And right, 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 no. right. This is a um, if. Y- I think we've all become very cynical about the Communist Party, so i I don't want to uh, I don't want to sound too breathless here. Like, it's not that much of a surprise because clearly what they're worried about is you yeah, know, right, right. A, a single spark can start a prairie fire, and the Communist Party started out as uh, you know ha- uh, twelve people in a room in Shanghai, and now it's eighty nine million people. Right. They understand embry- the danger of of embryonic movements. That's clearly what they're concerned about. Exactly. Right? I mean, and, then, and they've done this. This is not new. They've done this to to lawyers. Right. You know. They, so I don't want to pretend like this is this is new, but this is striking because this I think finally removes if you had any remaining leg on your stool of the Communist Party having any sympathy for the plight of workers, um, and of, of real, real actual Marxism and a socialist vision for the country. This, this, I think, cuts that off because they're more concerned about political stability and, st- and remaining in power, and they'll crush anything, even if it is a uh, organic movement of students to fight on behalf of, of China's workers.
0: So are you making an argument that China is not, in fact, ideological?
1: Oh, interesting setup question. Uh, no, and and we've talked about this before. And and there's obviously the the word ideology, like the word legitimacy, is is fraught with misunderstandings and and vagaries. And I think we all use ideology in vastly different ways. Right. But there's,
0: according to our ideology, according
1: to our ideology, <laughs> you know, ideology is usually something we say that the bad guys are doing, right? So you know, uh, Marxist-Leninist organizations are ideological, you know, whereas we're pragmatic. Um, but there's there's this idea, and I think John Garneau wrote, wrote a or gave a speech which Bill Bishop excerpted um, and it's it's a compelling it's a compelling speech, but he, he makes the a core argument that we've really seen a a quote, you know, a return of ideology under Xi Jinping or a resurgence of ideology. And and my perspective is looking back at the debates that have been there all throughout the reform and opening period. But especially looking at a man like Deng Xiaoping, this was a deeply ideological person. You know, the four cardinal principles, which he outlined in, in the spring of 1979, which basically said, we're, we're going to reform an opening, but here are the guardrails. Right? right. We, we will never challenge the party. We will never challenge. You know, we, we will never have a, a different ism um, other than Marxism, Leninism. Um you know, this is going to be a, a very restricted type of reform and opening. Right. Um, and then after the 1992 Southern tour, where a, a more clear picture of China's state capitalism emerges and this this declaration of no more debates, what he meant is my ism will be the only ism. Right. That's a form of that's a pretty strict ideology.
0: Um, so I just. I, I, although I mean, you could say his was sort of a, a pra- is pragmatism an ideology. I don't know is agnosticism a religion? I don't know. You
1: know, Ch- Chung Lee has a new essay out where, where, and, and I apologize, I forget the name of of the, of the um of the co of the co author, but he's he basically says um, Xi Jinping is is firm about the 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 goals, but flexible about the tactics taken. Right. So even within this highly ideological, you know, Xi Jinping era, we're seeing people saying he's the goals are inflexible, but, but the tactics aren't. And I think that's a really great way of describing Deng Xiaoping. Um, so anyway, ideology has always mattered in China. It will it will continue to matter. This is how the party communicates future directions in policy is through these code ideological words that to us make seem like, you know, Dreary, dreary renderings of 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 sort of Marxist nonsense, but the party still speaks. And you know, you see on the People's Daily, you'll see headlines with the word dialectical materialism in it. You know,
0: you can still yeah, I mean, you can still learn a lot by by listening to what they say. Even if, and I think
1: we talked about this, we can say that the party's ideology is muddled. Right, we can say that, but it doesn't mean there's no there 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 was no ideology ten sure. years ago. And again, the, the neo Maoists would not have come to existence if they didn't think the party had the wrong ideology. They thought the ideology was neoliberal, and they needed to combat that.
0: you so you 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 basically argue that there's always been ideology, and there's always been politics. I mean, at the core of your book is this assertion that yeah, even in in China, in this authoritarian state. Uh, where a lot of people claim that people bargained away. Right. Uh, their, their, they've sort of waived their rights to political participation in any form or to you know giving There's a- There's an a,
1: unspoken a social contract.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, you know, that's, that's a pretty common trope, and it's one I've I've probably used in some form or another, but, you know, I've, I've deployed that. Uh, they, they actually do, you say, have the politics that it's still quite, you know, contested. Uh, it does impose some limits on even a leader as- as powerful as somebody who's arrogated so much authority to himself like Xi Jinping that yeah. the, the, there are fetters on what he can do. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit?
1: We were just talking about the Marxist students, and I think that's a, a good example of here. here's a group of the best and brightest in China who, who apparently haven't signed on to this unspoken contract, right? Right. So um, – th- Clearly, there are limitations to how much politics can exist on China. And those limitations are the amount of violence and coercion that the the party uses to make sure that the the public square is only talking about the things the party wants it to talk about. So we've just seen an absolute devastation of the public square, which was always limited. But we were just talking about the golden era in Hu Jintao thinking, I mean, that was the halcyon days. If you think back now about how much discourse was permitted... But over the past couple of years, we've seen magazines like Chun Cho be shuttered. We've seen Unirule, which is Mao Yisheng's think tank, literally be welded shut. We've seen the crackdown on rights slurs. You know, we've seen Weibo absolutely eviscerated yeah. in terms of being an interesting platform. Um, so, so we've seen you know WeChat now has has much more restrictions uh, on on what can be said. And if you start a group, you're legally you know responsible for That's what people right. say. In other words, don't start a group. Um, so there's definitely limitations on politics, but that's not to say that Chinese people don't have agency and aren't deeply, deeply interested and in invested in the future direction of the country. Um, looking at, at the sort of quiescence, which is being enforced through coercion, shouldn't be mistaken for um, disinterest or that the fact that people are just focusing on putting bread on the table and don't care about. It's
0: infantilizing. The, uh, it's right.
1: infantilizing. And it's, you know, we have a lot of tropes and, and I'm, I'm all for tropes because tropes are helpful for uh, for, you know, we all need heuristics. Yeah, the absolutely. world is infinitely complex. We just got to make sure our heur- heuristics are right. And I remember- And they're if, flexible. Remember they the one their... about um, uh, growth? If, if economic growth falls below 8%, right. that's going to spell catastrophe for the party. You know? <laughs> and I don't remember anyone who had been saying that, admitting after it dropped to 7.5.
0: And now to six Yes. Yeah, so so whatever, I just yeah. think
1: we need to constantly be interrogating, uh, um, constantly interrogating our heuristics. And the reason I think the sort of China has politics too trope, which is- I use it so much, it's becoming a trope as important is as we're, for example, going into this really dark period of U.S.-China relations. As analysts, one of the things we want to understand are what is the sort of incentive structure for Chinese leaders to make decisions? What are the constraints on how they make decisions? And if we if we have a just a, a, a heuristic of there's a totally empty public square and it's just Xi Jinping who's sitting at a desk making decisions, that's going to give us a really warped perspective on what his option set is, rather than probably the, the reality, which is Xi Jinping's probably the most lonely person in China, who who has uh, who's not getting great information because he probably has subordinates who are misinterpreting and malinterpreting and malreporting information to him. Um, unlike a leader in a in a constitutional democracy, who feels legitimate after an election, Xi Jinping is is in many ways probably feeling like he has to run for office every day because he doesn't have that he doesn't have that legitimating moment like an election right so he probably feels more imperiled than most democratic leaders um and so they absolutely care about what the quote-unquote people think even if it's in different ways that we care about how the people think in, right. in a constitutional democracy right so um, understanding that china has politics too um however we want to interpret it and analyze that i just think is a, is a, is an important starting point
0: um there's a conversation i had recently i i can't say who it was with but with, with a couple of prominent intellectuals in china uh where we we talked about this uh we talked about the party's use of technology right now specifically of of big data and ai uh and the app the the yeah. app uh they they made the case, they were both very, very emphatic about this, that we're seeing something that we have not seen before. We've seen this, uh, a mechanism through online sentiment analysis uh, that could yield real uh, responsiveness in, in in some sense. They're, they're, they're looking very, very carefully at subtle shifts in public opinion and, and quite granularly, just local expressions of public dissatisfaction with particular policies and things like that. And so in in some ways uh, the, the 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 very top of the party leadership is more responsive th- than it's been ever, but it is disintermediating the entire middle bureaucracy in in, in doing this. And it's making it really really difficult. At the same time that this is happening, which is you know you might see as a positive, definitely a mixed, but at the same time the party now has this downward transmission mechanism from the very top through this app to the, the whole of society again disintermediating the entire middle layers of bureaucracy this is, is something that we should be sort of l- looking at and trying to understand what are the what what, what happens like the, when when you have you know, it's it's a bit like Trump and. going see,
1: that seems like Trump and Twitter. That's right, really interesting, right? right? Um, and it, it, I hadn't thought of this before. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting thesis. And I don't know what the implications are. But as you were saying, it, I was thinking, yeah, that's exactly like, it's exactly like Trump and Twitter.
0: It, it's, the second part of it, the first part of it. Yeah, it, yeah, sorry, exactly.
1: Right. Like is not the right way. It has it has parallels to sure, um, uh, how Trump communicates with, uh, with with people in the United States through a direct medium. Um, I don't have it. Oh, yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that before. But that disintermediation and what the impact on the bureaucracy and what the impact on policy implementation would be, but also the impact of sort of job satisfaction for cadres who are now right. feel probably cut out even more marginalized on the way up and the
0: wall, on the way on the way down. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Anyway, man, what a what a fun time it is to have you. I mean, I, I always just enjoy having you on the show and uh, want to you know get you on more regularly in the future. Um, Let's move on to recommendations. I mean, thanks for just a terrific conversation. Uh, Let me, uh, again, congratulate you on the book Uh, to remind listeners, it's called China's New Red Guards, The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong. It's out right now. Uh, Recommendations. But first, let me remind everyone that the Cynical podcast is powered by SubChina. Take take a moment and subscribe to SubChina Access and start getting the daily newsletter delivered right to your inbox. Uh, Members get an early version of this podcast, usually on Monday evenings, East East Coast time, instead of Thursday evenings like the rest of you. They get discounts to our conferences, free admission to our live shows, and we're doing those every Month in New York, and of course a berth aboard our Slack channel, where you can talk directly. You can disintermediate everyone else and talk directly to, uh, to you know, our our leading small group consisting of Jeremy Goldcorn and, and me. And uh, you can uh, also. You know, take part in the live chats that we have, and Jude, you're officially invited to 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 do one of our live chats with with our guests. Those are a lot of fun. Uh, So, everyone, sign up, show your support for what we're doing. On the recommendations, Jude, what do you have for us, man?
1: So, in the in the vein of of um, sort of marginalized communities and, and, uh, understanding what motivates drives and, uh, brings them together. Uh, we recently watched a really interesting documentary. We watched it on Netflix, but I'm, I'm sure it's available in, in, in other fine online platforms, but it's called behind the curve. And it's a investigation of flat earthers. Oh, wow. um, so it's directed by Daniel Clark came out in 2018. Um, Really well shot. Really great group of of really sympathetic characters. Just really, really interesting people who believe a wacky set of <laughs> ideas and have a really, really wacky worldview. But um, I just thought um, in this sort of age of polarization, any any attempt to be empathetic, even if you can, even Scale if you just the absolutely wall, disagree, right, right. but right. if you can absolutely disagree and find mortifying, that's fine. But I think some. Some level of empathy to understand what's driving these people to to move away from um, you know sort of rational scientific conclusions about the world is, is is a worthwhile endeavor. So this is really well done. Uh, it includes a few songs by a band I like called Real Estate in the soundtrack, so that's another reason to like it. Uh, but but highly recommended for people who are interested in in marginalized communities and groups.
0: Well, I certainly am. I'm going to watch that today, man. I mean, all my shows are done, so I mean, I got to <laughs> watch some I think I like we got one more episode of Chernobyl and then have you have you been watching that? No, no. Oh my god, it's great. Oh, it's just fantastic.
1: We're canceling our HBO Go. I should. Uh, I know, so I, know. I know. Just done, one, so. one, one last.
0: Just, yeah. just take take the time to watch Chernobyl before you cancel because it's it's definitely worth watching. And uh, by the way, listen to the Peter Sagal uh, podcast that he does with the the producer of Chernobyl. It's 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 really it's terrific. Um, it's just called the Chernobyl podcast, but that's not my recommendation. My recommendation is actually a book uh, called "How to Hide an Empire" by Daniel Limerwar. Uh He's a professor at Northwestern. It, it's about the United States beyond the logo map of the familiar logo map of the Lower Forty Eight. You know, that's sort of what we think of of you know the contiguous lower states. Um, but about how it went on, how the United States, you know, actually went about acquiring and then, uh, and then kind of entering this phase of de- denial um, about its empire abroad, not just the American Imperium of, you know, Hollywood movies and, you know, its soft power empire or even, like, its network of military bases, but actually, you know, territories that were held. I'm talking about, obviously, Puerto Rico. Uh, he talks actually quite a bit about pre-state Alaska and Hawaii, you know, in, in relations with the indigenous peoples there, but also uh, quite a bit about all the filibusters and the efforts to, to go after Cuba and the, I mean, and, and the the war in the Philippines, which is just you've read about it, in, you know, um, what's his name, Howard, um,
1: Howard Zinn, Howard
0: Zinn, right, right. But but this is this is just at a level of granularity that I haven't seen before. It, this guy writes just wonderfully. It's a it's a terrifically readable book. I mean, I highly recommend it. Uh, if I were teaching an American history course, I would absolutely assign it to undergrads. It's it's just a fascinating book. Um, it goes off on, on some just marvelous tangents, especially when he tries to explain sort of the technologies that enabled America to sort of forego empire. Uh, and some, the guy teaches history of science, and so there's a lot of stuff in, in that as well. I mean, he, he sort of shows his chops. It's, 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 it's delicious, it's really fun. Jude, man. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time and I'm so glad you could come down here and uh, happy birthday to your great aunt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: you very much. She,
0: she remembers who you are finally. Yep. Oh, that's Took good. five
1: minutes but she got there.
0: Well, let's go get some barbecue. Sounds good. All right. The Seneca right. Podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaija Guo, me, and Jeremy Goldkorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Saishin Sinica Business Brief, the Pandaily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two new shows The on women, e-voices, talk, talk, and the Middle Earth Podcast on in China. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, hey.